Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person, real or imagined, or the dark forces of Outre-Terre. It is not intended for children. For the second time in too short a period of time, I was standing at the grave of one of my friends. This time it was the grave of Thaddeus Roberts, though I only knew him as Roberts. You could barely read the writing on the headstone, which was one of the oldest and most weathered I had ever looked at in person. I could make out these words. Thaddeus Roberts, beloved husband, father, and soldier, 1756 to 1777. Twenty-one years old. And to think I had just spoken to him yesterday. Wait. Could you say things like yesterday when time travel is involved? Uh, sorry about this, Control. I guess my thoughts are still scattered. Let me start again. It's been a month since the Control Rescue Mission. Spent a lot of it reorganizing the finances and rebuilding the Pinkerton infrastructure. But you already know about most of that, Control, so let's skip ahead. I was having lunch with Violet when I got this text message. We received a message from the clockwork cognomen about a strange anomaly occurring at the site of Washington's Crossing on the border of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Discussing time travel anomalies is... difficult. But in any case, the cognomen have deemed the issue to be on a small enough scale that they would prefer we check out the issue first before sending their own men in. Detective Russo, that means you. Ugh, typical clockwork cognomen. They never give straight answers about what's happening. They must have offered Control a sweet deal for her to send me over with so little data. I looked at Violet and sighed. She frowned. Work again? Ugh, afraid so. Sorry for ruining your trip. Again. The last time she had visited New Jersey, she needed to get stitches before taking an attack from a Pinkerton bounty hunter. Don't worry about it, Sean. I know the work you do is important. How long will it take you? Well, in theory, this is just a scouting mission. It's at Washington's Crossing, New Jersey. Hopefully it's only going to take me a few hours, but I'd prefer if you didn't come this time. After the last mission, I figured it was best not to take chances. Violet nodded and stood up. I threw money down onto the table. All right. I'll head back to my hotel. You... be safe. If I don't hear from you by 8 o'clock tonight, I'm going to... I don't know. Do something. Just get back in touch with me, okay? I nodded. I will. Violet smiled. From where I was, the trip to Washington's Crossing took about an hour, and I thought through the case. There were almost no details, but the flip side is I had to work under the assumption that every detail was potentially relevant. So, why Washington's Crossing? Well, events of extreme historical significance often turned into these sorts of touchstones in history, like a marker where paths branched out. 
The Battle of Trenton was incredibly important to the American Revolution, and that was, of course, presaged by Washington's crossing of the Delaware from Pennsylvania into New Jersey. Objectively, it didn't change much about the makeup of either army or the strategies of either side, but that wasn't why it mattered. Washington's army had been riding a string of defeats and had lost almost every direct engagement with the British to that point. People in the army were getting discouraged. The genius of Washington was the genius of a man who rolled a nat 20 on charisma. He knew that if he didn't get them a win and a clear and overwhelming win, very soon there was going to be no way forward for them to win the war. Hence the sneak attack on a building full of Hessians. Overwhelming American victory, almost no losses, everybody's confidence skyrockets, and Washington uses this momentum to hold the army together through a tough winter at Morristown. Great, I know why the location matters, but why the anomalies? Who could be causing them? What did they even look like? I had no idea, but I guess that's why they pay me the big bucks. So, Washington's Crossing State Park is actually two state parks, not one. The larger park is in New Jersey, and it has the majority of the park's attractions. Observatory, nature center, stuff like that. Pennsylvania has the actual site of the crossing, and that spot is the biggest tourist trap. I admit I was a little interested myself, not that I was some super American Revolution buff or anything, but there's always going to be a little romanticism over that first war of independence, and I wasn't immune to it. So anomalies. Oh, let's see. This could be something like flipping forward in time, or it could have to do with memory loss, things disappearing, or even visual stimuli. You know, Morrow's Kronos 2 mission had me wary. I just had to keep my eyes open for anything weird. I visited anywhere in the park that seemed like it might involve something notable to do with history. First, of course, was the spot of the crossing itself, then, no particular order, the Nelson House, Bowman's Hill Tower, McConkie's Ferry Inn, and the Thompson Neely House. And I didn't find a thing. Yeah, it was absolutely baffling. I spoke with guides and tourists, asking them if anything unusual had been happening lately. Most of them were more confused by the question than anything. It was hours of walking and interviewing and nothing to show for it. I even tried to approach a few of the Revolutionary War ghosts walking around. Of course, there were a few. But they weren't interested in talking to me. The Ring of Disbel allows me to see the Otraterra, but it doesn't guarantee anything else. What were the Clockwork Cognomen even talking about? I considered reassessing my approach, but with how little information I had, I wasn't even sure where to start. Besides, did I even need to reassess? What's even the point? I was supposed to check on the area. Well, I did, and it's fine. The ghosts are normal for places this important to history. The more august the occasion, the greater the chance that things linger. And that wasn't counting the non-related things watching the people from trees, or the strange remains of Amerindian religious site, like a wine stain on a white couch. There was just one place I wanted to stop left, a small building called the Johnson Ferry House. It was the last vaguely history-related site in the park I hadn't checked out yet. On the night of the crossing, there was a pretty good chance that Washington and some of his men stayed here. It got crowded when tours went through, but I was checking in and in between time, so I figured it would be empty. I had done a quick sweep of the bottom floors when I nearly jumped out of my shoes at the sight of a man standing next to an upper floor window. I had no clue he was there when I opened the door. He was dressed, um, well, not sure exactly how to describe it. He wore a tricorn hat. 
similar to what Continental Army soldiers would have worn. And a blue jacket, but underneath he wore something... yellow? It looked slightly off from what you'd expect a Continental Army cosplayer reenactor to wear. His pants were tight and white. When he saw me, he jumped too, and what he was holding in his hand fell to the ground. I reached forward to pick it up, but the man ran forward and beat me to it. I was only able to get a glimpse of what looked like an old-fashioned pocket watch. He tucked it quickly into his pocket before I could take a closer look. I opened my mouth to apologize, but the man cut me off. I'm so sorry to frighten you. People don't generally enter the building outside of tour times. I'm a, uh, a reenactor, you see. He spoke with a slight British accent. I blinked at him. A reenactor. So, why, you were getting your costume ready? The man beamed at me. Precisely. Yes, I'm going to be in a, uh, a reenactment. This outfit, I'm a Hessian, you see. Those were the soldiers Washington and men defeated during the Christmas Eve attack. So, you went in here on your own to get dressed for a reenactment of the attack? I'm so sorry for startling you, Mr. Uh, Russo, but call me Sean. I'm Dr. Brian Stewart. Brian's fine. Hanging out with the reenactors all day. Well, between you and me, they're a bit of an odd bunch. Very gung-ho. I am too, of course, but sometimes you just want a moment to yourself without being on all the time, you know? And there are a few hours... I nodded. Uh, makes sense. Sorry for bothering you. Enjoy your day. You as well, Sean. Pleasure meeting you. As I walked away from the ferry house, I decided to consider it a job well done. I checked. There was nothing going on. We could all relax. Besides, Violet was waiting. I paused. I was already here. And it would take me a good bit of time to drive back anyway. Maybe I could catch the reenactment Ryan mentioned to me. I went up to a guide. Excuse me, um, what time will you be reenacting the crossing? The guide looked at me, confused. Reenacting the crossing? What are you talking about? Now it was my turn to be confused. Um, I talked to a reenactor earlier. He said he was preparing for a reenactment. He was dressed as a Hessian. The guide blinked. See, that's even weirder. Not only is there no reenactment, there wouldn't be Hessians at a reenactment anyway. Washington and his men didn't face the Hessians at the crossing. They faced the Hessians in Trent... Wait, where are you going? I'd already start sprinting back to the Johnson Ferry House, cursing my idiocy. That man, Dr. Stewart. What was that pocket watch thing he was looking at? What was he doing alone and dressed as a Hessian? Neither of these were red flags on their own, but my Pinkerton instincts were screaming at me that I missed something. I needed more time in the field. The paperwork would kill me for all the wrong reasons. I burst into the same empty room of the Johnson Ferry House I was in earlier. It was locked this time, but I didn't hesitate, taking out my gun, slamming it as hard as I could down the doorknob. The knob shattered. Dr. Stewart cried out in surprise at the sight of me, but this time something weird was happening. He was... glowing? Some sort of yellow-blue glow was illuminating him. 
The colors mixed, but never turned to green or mingled completely. It was like looking at a simple kaleidoscope and rotating it around his portrait. When he saw my gun, he didn't hesitate either, and fumbled quickly for his own weapon, holstered at his side. He practically dropped it as the kaleidoscope behind him had snapped into something more, like water draining down a tub. I didn't know what was going on, but I could tell I had to act now, and... Okay, control. There are decisions that you make in times of crisis that you really end up questioning in hindsight. My decision to tackle Dr. Stewart just now is one of them. I could say I tackled him for questioning, but I go over it over and over again in my head. One way or another, I don't really see a way out of it. So just remember that when you read about what happens next, if I had to do it again, well, I would. These are the sorts of calls you need to make when you're on the job. I tackled Dr. Stewart, and it was at that moment everything went weird. It was like the whole world had disappeared around us. The space surrounding us dissolved, and we hurtled through some... How do you describe it? How do you describe the sensation of nothing? It isn't blackness. Blackness is a color. It's this moment of total disorientation, where every marker you normally use to make sense of the world is just gone. For a moment, I didn't have a body, not really. There was no sign of anything, even when I flowed through something, like ketchup through a bottle. It didn't last long, I don't think. It's hard to tell in retrospect. Maybe talking about time and that world in between worlds is the wrong way to think of things. A 15-minute wait in a doctor's office is longer than an hour-long dinner with your girlfriend, right? I mean, you might think, since we were both incorporeally floating through some sort of space-time nexus thing, that wouldn't hurt when we reappeared again physically. You would be amazingly, unbelievably wrong about that. I slammed hard into the dirt. Dr. Stewart next to me. The breath went out of Dr. Stewart, and he struggled to breathe. And it was dirt I slammed into, God's brown earth. I sat up and looked around, disoriented. I fell back into my Pinkerton training. Clearly, we'd been transported somewhere, but... Where? How? It suddenly occurred to me that it was freezing out, which was weird, since it was summer where we came from. Also, we were surrounded by evergreen trees. Were we somehow further north, in Canada? This was all related to something Dr. Stewart had been doing, obviously. And while I couldn't be sure, my best guess is that it was related to that weird pocket watch he'd been looking at. I turned to Dr. Stewart, who sat up and was staring at me with such a murderous look in his eyes, I almost flinched. Do you have any idea what you just did? He got to his feet and stuck his finger in my chest. I slapped away his hand. I did not take this job to get yelled at by college professors. All I did was tackle you. I'm pretty sure you were the one who was doing something. Ah, idiot! The cultured and well-spoken professor type from earlier was gone. He was seething with rage. I was trying to end up at Trenton, December 25th, 1776. Wait, wait, you mean... I tried to wrap my brain around what he was saying. Time travel? It doesn't matter what you are, sometimes you just get blindsided. Yes, you dolt. Time travel. 
he said as if reading my mind. I had everything planned out, down to the second. But you, when you tackled me, oh, you ruined everything. I have no idea where we are or when we are. It was a fact of Pinkerton life that we had to deal with being transported on occasion and into bizarre and unexpected realities. And time travel, I knew, was possible, though I had no interest in working out the tangled logic of it. Again, see Detective Morrow's case labeled Kronos' tomb. Perhaps three or so years ago, maybe even less, I would have been paralyzed by the bizarreness of it all. But today, I took it all in stride. I was a paranormal Pinkerton, and this was a case. I looked at Stuart. So that pocket watch. If you have it, why not just use it again? <sighs> it doesn't work like that. The watch contains a vein from the heart of Kronos, its single use, and will transport the holder back to his original place and time on December 26, 1776. 17... So we're definitely further back than that date. Stuart rolled his eyes. We are, yes. That's all I know. The pocket watch itself, as you can see, is rather damaged. He held it up in front of me, and sure enough, it was banged up. This is going to make the mission rather difficult now, so thanks for that. I felt the hair on my back stand up. What mission? Stuart was twiddling with his watch, but I got into a ready stance. Then Stuart smiled, and I finally grasped for the first time that Dr. Brian Stewart was insane. Something in his eyes sparkled in all the worst ways. The mission to warn the Hessians, of course. You see, looking at the various points of contact in the time stream with the American Revolution, the crossing of the Delaware on December 25th seemed like the best chance to do it. Do... what? Kill Washington, of course. It's simplicity itself. Alert the Hessians so they're prepared in advance. Ambush the Americans and make sure Washington is killed. Not hard at all for someone who knows their history, like myself. The full gravity of the situation was finally starting to hit me. So that's why you did all of this? But why? Stuart sighed. Is there even a point to explaining to one such as you? You'll never understand, Sean. And because of that, I'm afraid you're going to have to die. Stuart did not even get a chance to draw. I was on my feet and ready. I kicked in his knee and he screeched. He didn't let go of his gun and pointed it at me. I was already grappling his arm. With a wrench, he pulled me off my feet and into the snow. I blamed the ice, but I had bent down too far. I had my hand on his wrist and my other sought his throat for any sort of chokehold. I wasn't going to die because this madman wanted a tenured position at Oxford. Stuart and I rolled while I desperately tried to wrench the gun out of his hand. At one point, it went off again, nearly deafening me. I wasn't worried about my own gun at that point. My right hand had his gun hand gripped. It couldn't pull well with my left. The angles were wrong. Plus, I had no idea if there was any way for me to get back to my own time without Stuart alive. So disarming was at least option number one. Stuart grabbed me by my shoulder and broke my grip on his neck. 
He dragged me off balance and we rolled, kicking up snow as the both of us put our weight out into coming on top. I'm no weakling, but Stuart was stronger than he looked. His face was red with exertion and his mouth twisted into a rage-filled grimace. Two of us crested the hill and rolled down in the snow, separating and slamming into each other. I came off worse. My back slammed into a tree and my head whiplashed into the trunk. I felt blood dripping down my face and felt dazed. Desperately, I shoved him off of me when I was shocked by the sound of a voice. Hey, this is Private Thaddeus Roberts. In the name of General Washington of God, stand and drop your weapons. Both of us were so surprised by this, we turned in the direction of the voice. But Stuart had reacted by turning his gun to Roberts. No! I jumped at Stuart, and again we both ended up on the ground, while Roberts fumbled for the musket he had at his side. Another bullet went off harmlessly into the air, and again we were on the ground. His gun fell out of his hands, and I felt a rush of relief. In a second, an explosion of pain so powerful I have never before or since felt anything like it hit me in the left eye. Somewhere in the haze of confusion and pain, I managed to dimly recognize what had just happened. Stuart had stabbed me. I don't remember what happened next very well. I felt blood pouring down my face like grass at the knife embedded in my eye, but my hands were quickly slick with the blood, and I felt weak. I collapsed back on the ground. As my vision swam, I saw the face of Thaddeus Roberts right above mine, yelling in a panic. Sir! Sir! For God's sake, sir, hold on! That was the last thing I remembered before I passed out. Sean Russo, signing off. For now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution non-commercial, share-alike international license. This episode was written by Anthony Marchetta and is performed by the same. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Kim Dickerson performs our audio editing. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on SF.com, or listen to us on unauthorized Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Contact us through Twitter at, at Pinkerton's Ghosts, email us at Pinkerton's Ghosts at gmail.com, or send us noble messenger possums with messages strapped to their backs. Don't worry, they know how to find us. Thank you for listening, and good luck.